This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. The topic of discussion today is going to be the complication that we have with central lines once they're in patients. Now, you remember on the last podcast, we did a rather lengthy discussion about all the things that give me heartburn uh, trying to teach residents uh, how to put in central lines. And, and, and the reality is, is many of the residents, particularly our senior residents, are much better at putting central lines in than I am. Um, but we need to be mindful that once we have a catheter in that's um, been inserted safely and we know everything has been done well and checked well, we have to remember that we're putting plastic where plastic was not intended to be. And there are complications associated with that. And I think the most obvious of that is infection. But we need to be mindful that there are other complications aside from infection that can be as serious, if not even more serious. Now, certainly infection is the most likely complication. Depending on what you're reading and the type of patients and the site of insertion, um, the um, incidence of infection with an indwelling catheter is estimated to be about 5.3 infections per 1,000 catheter days. And that has an attributed mortality rate of 18%, which seems rather high. And depending on what particular paper you're looking at, they report uh, associated mortality rate or attributed mortality rates between 0 and 35%. Now, most infections arise at the skin insertion site or the catheter hub, depending on the indwelling time, and then it's perpetuated by a biofilm, which is basically a a bacterial-derived community embedded in a matrix of extracellular polymeric substances that they produce. Basically, it's a big goopless gel produced by the bacteria. Now, femoral vein catheters have a higher risk of infection than subclavian vein catheters or internal jugular vein catheters. Uncuffed catheters have a higher infection rate than uncuffed catheters. The presence of thrombosis creates a higher risk of infection than the absence of thrombosis. And it's for this reason there's been significant effort to try to render uh, these catheters less thrombogenic, and these included heparin coating. Uh, But clearly the risk of creating a problem with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia really makes the, these uh, use of heparin-bonded coating uh, more and more um, unlikely and, and not wise. There's been a significant move around the country to um, reduce risk of infections about the way that we insert these catheters by using a bundled approach. And that bundled approach is uh, educating the, the person who's going to be inserting the catheter with uh, issues regarding hand hygiene, the use of chlorhexidine preparation, the use of full sterile guard precautions, and removal of the central venous catheter as soon as possible. We at Vanderbilt have a checklist that when you insert a central venous catheter, for instance, a, a nurse um, participant is basically running through a checklist and basically documenting whether the uh, provider, the operator, has cleansed their hands. Are they using chlorhexidine prep? Do we have a full body drape? Does the operator have cap, uh, a cap mask, um, gown, and sterile gloves? And are those precautions being followed? And that has significantly reduced uh, the rates of infections in, in many of our intensive care units. Basically what it is, it is creating a Hawthorne effect, a big brother effect basically, that basically observing and and documenting and assuring that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And it's amazing that when you do what you're supposed to do, things seem to work right. 
other things that we do nowadays, which is a dramatic difference than what we did when I was a resident, is we avoid routine catheter exchanges. Keep in mind about how we're saying these catheters are getting affected. That there's a biofilm that forms on the exterior surface of the catheter, and that when you change out a guide wire, uh, a catheter over a guide wire, basically what you're doing is you're removing the catheter, but then you're taking that sterile catheter and basically putting it through that transcutaneous segment, which could be colonized or where there could be the start of an infection. So certainly avoiding uh, routine catheter exchanges. Also, use of antibiotic ointments on the entry site. Now there's these chlorhexidine impregnated sponges to dress the insertion area uh, are felt to reduce the sites, um, excuse me, reduce the incidence of infection. A little bit of discussion on these chlorhexidine impregnated sponges and it's a little bit of a bias in my part and when I deviate from science I'll tell you that but the thing that makes me a little bit nervous about these is prior to having these everybody all the providers on the team could go in and inspect the transcutaneous site and we got away from routine central venous catheter uh, um, uh, changes. We used, to, we used to say routinely that we would change a catheter every five days and, and I'll discuss that. We do things a little bit differently in our burn unit based on our own internal data but the Center for Disease Control says we don't need to actually change a catheter on a, uh, a pre-scheduled um, you know, every five days or every seven days, basically looking at all comers. As long as the site doesn't appear to be red, well, that's great and, and that's why in, in some part we have these these uh, semi-permeable membranes where we can actually look at the catheter site and see whether the catheter site is getting infected or not. But now what we've done is we've taken this chlorhexidine sponges that sit right on the catheter site. And so it really impedes a direct inspection by all the providers of the team every time they go in and examine the patient. Does the catheter site look red or not? And really what it does is that the only person who gets to actually inspect that site in its totality is the provider who does that dressing change on an every 48 or every 72 hour um, dressing change, whatever your individual institution's guidelines are. And that makes me uh, actually quite a bit concerned. Now, some studies suggest that adhering to these different measures, you know, like these bundles and, and the antibiotics and so forth, uh, eliminates differences in infection rates seen in all three insertion sites, basically making it an equal battlefield that the IJ site uh, has an equivalent uh, infection of risk, as does the femoral site. Now, in our burn unit at Vanderbilt, we use antimicrobial impregnated catheters. And this is actually a recommendation that's outlined in the Center Disease Control Guidelines um, for Central Venous Catheters. And um, they do recommend the use of antimicrobial impregnated central venous catheters in selected clinical situations. And burn patients is one of those uh, uh, selected clinical situ uh, situations. Now, uh, Mackey and, and their papers provide a good summary of, of numerous studies demonstrating a substantial number of bloodstream infections that can be prevented, uh, roughly 40%, with the use of short-term antimicrobially impregnated central venous catheters. The next potential complication of an indwelling catheter I want to talk about is thrombosis. And it's a frequent occurrence, depending on, again, the, the literature we're looking at, ranges between 33 and 59% of indwelling catheters. The clinical symptoms develop in just a small percentage of the patients. Um, and when you think about 
where we're putting these catheters and, and, and what we're really doing. We, we learned in medical school things like Verkhaus triad. And, you know, these things seem some sort of antiquated in the days where we can have ultrasounds in every ICU. We've got these amazing CT angios and we can pick up, you know, um, totally occluding or partially occluding thrombus sitting in veins on CAT scans. But typically a inside of a blood vessel is designed with the endothelium to be smooth as glass. And in an ideal circumstance, blood is flowing through there in a very laminar type circumstance. But yet when we insert a catheter, we have a very traumatic event. We, we basically take a needle and, and a guide wire and a catheter and puncture it through the wall of the vessel. And then we leave this big piece of plastic in the vessel kind of flapping in the breeze and, and really don't give a whole lot of thought to what is the impact of, of of that endothelium and and what is the impact of having that big piece of plastic floating in that vein flapping back and forth and we really need to do it particularly when we think of uh, issues concerning uh, thrombosis uh, of the catheter as well as thrombosis in which the vein in which that catheter sits so the pathogenesis of these uh, thrombosis is, is clearly multifactorial, but clearly uh, injury to the endothelium is, is a central component. Turbulence of the venous flow, as well as the thrombogenicity of having that big piece of plastic, that catheter sitting there. They're all playing a role uh, in the development of thrombosis of the vein or thrombosis on the catheter. And we also have to think about the composition of the infusate, because certain characteristics of the infusate, whether it's hyperosmolar or whether it's and cause a phlebitis of the central vein can also aggravate the situation and, and basically make a situation more thrombogenic. The rate of central venous catheter-induced thrombosis is lower for subclavian veins than it is for IJs and femoral veins. For example, the rate of thrombosis for a subclavian vein access is reported about 1.9%, but um, for a femoral vein, for instance, the thrombosis rate will be 22 to 29 percent after a period of between 4 and 14 days. So clearly, uh, if you had your choice, a subclavian vein um, access is perhaps better than a femoral vein uh, for the rate of thrombosis. And we're always worried about things like deep venous thrombosis. And I'm going to try to pull all this together. Remember on the insertion sites, uh, the insertion podcast, we talked about some of the complications uh, increased complications of particularly femoral sites and putting catheters in that were large under emergent circumstances and hypovolemic patients. Those are situations that were commonly, in, in most trauma bays, people are slamming these eight and a half cordis introducers. And, and you have to ask yourself by listening to the first podcast, does that make any sense? And then we know one of the biggest complications of these patients who have multiple injuries is what? Deep venous thrombosis. And we've got tons and tons of literature. And we do all these things. We talk about green-filled filters and use of Lovenox. But yet, by putting in a, a, a catheter in the femoral vein, you're looking at a 22 to 29% uh, rate of thrombosis in that uh, femoral vein versus a 1.9% potential thrombosis rate in using a subclavian vein. And that doesn't even talk about the risks of infection. Occasionally, you can get thrombosis of the central veins, and uh, um, seen a couple of these during my residency is basically an occlusion of the, sub, uh, of the superior vena cava. And the literature reports that that occurs at about an estimated rate of one in a thousand indwelling devices, which I'm actually surprised it's that large. Uh, like I said, I've seen a handful of cases. Uh, particularly during my residency, and most of them were patients uh, who uh, were on the oncology service. Cannulating a central vein and allowing a catheter to remain in place. 
can certainly lead to the complication of stenosis. And these numbers are interesting, but um, uh, you can about 30% of patients without, okay, 30% of patients without a previous catheterization from a central venous catheter could potentially have clinically significant venous anatomic abnormalities, uh, which is interesting. I mean, one out of three. But when you start putting central venous catheters in patient, you take that number up to about 60% will have um, defects, and that's if they've been catheterized, uh, had a central venous catheter in previously, particularly through the subclavian vein approach. So you take that 30% to 60%. Now, this is something that we, in the past, haven't given much thought of, but by working closely with our nephrologists, this is something that we consider, that if you have a patient who is potentially going to have renal complications in the future by the nature of their injury, or they come in with a baseline creatinine of 2, or you're throwing you know, all the antibiotics plus blood flag and colimycin at them and you're running this real substantial risk of of renal failure you have to take pause before you start pointing in something like a right subclavian vein or a left subclavian vein um, catheter in them because if they're going to for instance need that site for uh, long-term dialysis access access you could potentially burn that bridge by basically causing a venous stenosis by putting in a subclavian vein catheter. And for that reason, um, some places have gone to using a high degree of uh, IJ catheters, uh, one for that reason, but two also because of the potentially increased safety of putting in internal jugular catheters with the use of ultrasound. Clearly one of the potentially more exciting complications by having an indwelling central venous catheter is actually having the catheter erode through a major blood vessel causing bleeding or hemothorax or pericardial tamponade. We talked about in the first podcast about the actual insertion is looking at the tip of that catheter and seeing what the angle uh, of approach of that, that catheter is in regards to the superior vena cava uh, or is it kind of more of an acute angle uh, basically pushing in on the, the vein. One thing to be mindful of is that when we look at an x-ray, we're looking at a very static picture, and we're not imagining what's happening. Say when you're looking at that catheter in the floor, is it banging against that sidewall, or what's its motion doing uh, uh, with the normal cardiac cycle? As I've mentioned, that these perforations of indwelling catheters can be associated with tamponade, and it really depends where that perforation has occurred. Does it occur um, basically above or below the, uh, um, the reflection of the uh, um, pericardium? Perforations without tamponade basically occur at an incidence of 0.4 to 1% of the cardiac catheterizations. And the mortality rate is actually pretty high at 12%. Erosion following by tamponade is estimated to take place in 0.2% of patients and has an associated mortality in those circumstances of approaching 90%. Now, we mentioned that from the first podcast about looking at some potential predictors that you're going to have problems. Another predictor of impending perforation is but looking at you see the tip kind of curled up and this is basically estimated to occur in about four percent of the placements and it may not be evident on a straight AP or PA that you may see in the ICU. It may actually require a lateral film to actually detect that that tip is curled up. Um, most of these cases of, of having kind of a curled tip occurs with left-sided uh, central venous catheter insertions. Uh, and what happens is it really kind of results in a more uh, horizontal approach of the central venous catheter coming uh, from the uh, left side to the nominate into the superior vena cava. What 
what happens is the tip of the catheter uh, really rests on the wall uh, when the catheter is not really sufficiently long to kind of make that curve and, and get into um, the um, superior vena cava. One author kind of described this uh, as imagine like a, a almost the cubitus ulcer is what happens is if you've got that constant pressure resting on that sidewall that it's eventually going to lead to erosion uh, much in a fashion very similar to what might, one may happen with a cubitus ulcer. There is some discussion about perhaps using pigtail catheters um, and an author brings up a, a question as to why we don't use that more often and it's actually very interesting. Uh, there was a study by um, Gravenstein and Blackshear. They looked at they looked at a model where pigtail catheters were 100 times less likely to perforate than straight tip catheters. Uh, there was also additional evidence to support the use of pigtail catheters. Uh, this is looking at a pig study, and it's shown that central access with loop catheters uh, can eliminate vein wall injury uh, process for substantial periods as compared to straight tip catheters. Uh, and this also went on to suggest that a thrombus at the tip of the catheter, which is a common cause of, of catheter dysfunction, as we all know, is likely to be less um, if the tip does not lie in direct contact with the vein wall. Another catheter-related uh, complication is having the, ca the catheter actually fracture or break. And if it does that, embolize down to the central venous circulation, something that just kind of makes all of us just kind of cringe. Uh, it's, recorded, it's reported to occur at a frequency of 0.5 to 3% of patients with indwelling catheters. Uh, embolization is clearly problematic, as you can imagine, going to the heart. It can lead to uh, arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, uh, pulmonary embolism, uh, uh, pulmonary infarction, hemoptysis. Uh, as well as overall infection rate, has a mortality rate reported as 71%, excuse me, a morbidity rate of 71%, and a mortality rate that's reported between 30 and 38%. Now, how this can actually occur is, is kind of interesting. We've all seen the central venous catheters where I, I call the the intern uh, kind of notch, particularly on subclavians, where you can see how the, the catheter is almost pinched as it comes out of the clavicle. And that used to be kind of a sign that you've got a very conscientious intern putting that catheter in or resonant because they're really hanging that clavicle pretty tightly. But what happens is when you kind of take that really tight bend under that clavicle between the clavicle and the first rib it actually causes kind of what's called a pinch off syndrome and we can see problems with this like uh, it's difficult for the catheter to, to flush and this actually puts some shearing and some tension on that catheter um, it's estimated, this syndrome is estimated to occur uh, about 1% of patients and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting whether to determine whether the catheter is obstructed or it's because you've kind of pinched off that catheter by riding it so tightly to the clavicle. But when you do that, it actually puts shear stress on that catheter, and it can break that catheter over a period of days and lead to the embolization. The last complication is some complications associated with removal uh, of the catheter. And... I believe we've had this happen uh, on a couple different occasions, and I think it's very difficult to to prove. Um, my opinion is it's just like we need to have a very high index of suspicion, and that's air embolism um, with the central venous catheter. I think we put a lot of emphasis on air embolism when we insert a catheter. Uh, we put the patient in Trendelenburg. We, we try to be very careful of that, but I don't think we actually are as careful as we should in, in regarding uh, the avoidance of air embolism when we take a catheter out. Air embolism is reported to occur between 0.13 and 0.5% of central venous catheters and insertions. 
um, mortality rates associated between 23 and 50 percent, which is obviously very concerning. Here's something to just really kind of just process that 100 milliliters of air. Okay, 100 milliliters of air. Visualize what 100 milliliters of air looks like, or 100 milliliters of anything. Kool-Aid, I don't care, but, you know, a, a graduated cylinder. That can pass through a 14-gauge needle in one second, which is really impressive. It does not take long to embolize a large amount of clinically significant air. It takes much less time than most people would believe. Now, there are several ways that we can get air embolism. It can occur through accidental hub disconnect, through a residual catheter track. Once you've taken the catheter out, there's a residual track there, and a patient takes a deep breath, they can actually suck air through that catheter track. Now, patients could have pretty profound neurological complications from this. Uh, typically, the path is the patient will have a patent foramen of valley. Um, and when the air envelope is recognized, uh, usually the therapeutic maneuvers that have been classically taught is putting the patient in Trendelenburg, left lateral, decubitus, um, um, try to aspirate the air, 100% oxygen, but these aren't usually effective. There's some discussion about hyperbaric oxygen, but really no significant um, or strong evidence. And, and how would you ever get that? I mean, there's no way that you could get a statistically valid sample Um to determine whether it helps or not. I certainly, it would not be a bad idea if a patient would clinically be uh, amendable to it to put him in a hyperbaric chamber if you thought the patient had an air embolism. So certainly something to be considered when you remove these. We put a lot of emphasis on what do we do when we insert them, make sure you have your gloves, your, your, gloves, your gowns, your prep, your drape, you know, make sure you don't have a pneumothorax. We talk a lot about what we do with infection. But details count. The details of the time of removal are also equally important to avoid this complication of air embolism. Well, now off to answer some emails uh, we've gotten from several listeners. One is from a flight nurse, and I'll just keep everybody's uh, give them anonymous so people don't feel um, afraid to ask questions. But I think the questions are, are there's a lot to learn from them because um, they illustrate several points. And also, if one person has a question, um, cer- certainly many more. The numbers of people who listen to this podcast on a weekly basis becomes is, is very uh, it's really impressive, and it's. Um, a lot of people have a lot of questions. This is an email. It says, lately we've been having discussions about the treatment of acidosis in the setting of hemorrhagic shock with hypotension during ongoing volume and blood replacements in pre-hospital. I uh, would be interested in your take and, and maybe a podcast on the subject. ATLS references vague, stating only that acidosis should not be routinely treated and should be treated with volume replacement. Not no, really much reference on that material I found as yet. Um, really the idea, and, and I've, we had a, another email about this a couple weeks ago where it was a, a surgical resident, and they were talking about a patient who is, I'll say, hypovolemic from blood loss, acidotic, and when to actually give bicarbonate. We talked about, well, first of all, the underlying cause typically in acidosis related to um, hypovolemia is hypovolemia. And so what you typically need to do is you need to replace the volume, treat the hypovolemia aggressively. If the patient's bleeding, stop the bleeding. Now, why do patients get acidotic? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The most obvious reason is the patient's developing a metabolic acidosis because they have poor oxygen delivery. And so the cells can't really use oxygen very well, and they go what's called anaerobic metabolism. 
metabolism. And so if you remember, I'm a firm believer that most of critical care could be taught with a high school education. And one of our emails we're going to talk to is going to allude to that, that uh, remember from high school biology that you start with glucose, and glucose goes through the uh, um, um, glycolysis and ends up in pyruvate. And if there's oxygen available, then that pyruvate goes into the Krebs cycle, also known as citric acid cycle, and then eventually in the electron transport chain, also called oxidative phosphorylation. If there is an oxygen available to feed those systems, then that pyruvate ends up going to form lactate, and that's a condition called lactic acidosis. And that's from poor uh, oxygen delivery, that's from anemia, and that's from hypovolemia. Now, the other thing that happens a lot in, in typically pre-hospital settings, and this is a flight nurse from a, heli- a very good helicopter service, is that a lot of, of trauma resuscitations are done with saline. And saline is a very acidotic solution. Uh, the reason why a lot of trauma resuscitations are done with saline is because saline typically is compatible with blood for blood transfusions. Uh, so if you're taking care of trauma victims in the back of a helicopter or an emergency department, you don't have to sit there and change out your fluids in order to give blood. Now the problem with saline is it's 154 milliequivalents of sodium and 154 milliequivalents of chloride. When you give somebody a lot of saline, which has a pH of roughly 4.5, look at the bag next time you hang it, it'll say, I'll give you a range pH, it can create a, a condition called hyperchloremic acidosis. And again, that could be a, also you're causing your acidosis from your treatment. So you really need to kind of break down as to why is my patient having this acidosis. If you draw a blood gas in a, in a basic metabolic profile and you've got a bicarb sitting there of, say, uh, 18 and a patient's got a, a low pH, but their chloride is 115 or 120 or 125, it may be that your volume resuscitation, resuscitation is actually part of the problem. Um, and we've done other podcasts on this on acidosis, but that's just kind of a, a brief uh, introduction of some of the acidosis related uh, in, in treatment of hemorrhagic shock. Another question that we received regards uh, ventilator management, particularly differences between peak pressure and plateau pressure. And uh, we did a podcast on peak inspiratory pressure. Uh, and the reason why I did that initial podcast was that I think that I, I saw that our residents and our critical care fellows were so focused on this number that if this number went above, say, 35 or 40, it was their perception that the patient's head was going to fall off the, their neck, roll across the floor of the intensive care unit, and then spontaneously combust. And I wanted the residents and the fellows to understand what goes into that number, this idea of what we call barotrauma. An email I got says, you know, I read the email, it says, my question resolves around ventilator management. Specifically, it addresses your peak inspiratory pressure podcast. Well, I enjoyed the podcast in question. I would like to know how you approach and address a similar topic in your ICU. When I started providing critical care transport some years, a newer concept in ventilator management was just beginning to hit the clinical environment in my area of the country. While monitoring peak pressures was, and still important, studies addressing and monitoring the use of static compliance, specifically the plateau pressure, were beginning to change the way we monitor our ventilator management strategies, specifically associated the elevated plateau pressures and, quote, barotrauma. Um, and the question goes on. The root question is, how does plateau monitoring fit into the overall picture of ventilator management, specifically in the setting of lung protective ventilator strategies? Do you re- routinely initiate inspiratory holes and monitor plateau pressures? Additionally, do you use number obtained to assist in the decision-making process? And, and uh, this is from a... Um, um, a nurse uh, and a, a critical care paramedic. 
the issues of plateau pressures, the, first of all, the issue of barotrauma needs to be addressed, is that we've learned it's, no, it's not so much that the, the pressure that is damaging to the lung, but the dimensions of the alveolus. Remember an alveolus is just a small little sac. And there are circumstances where we can have pe- patients with normal peak pressures and have trauma or volume trauma to that alveolus. Um, and it's really difficult to to illustrate this without illustrations and, and demonstrating the physiology. I, I like audio podcasts because I listen to podcasts when I run, and I like to think that people are using these similarly. That's why I try to stay away from video podcasting. I think it really limits our audience. But the thing with plateau pressures that's very interesting is a peak pressure is really measures the dynamic compliance. How elastic is that lung when we're moving air? And the plateau pressure is the static compliance, or what's the elasticity of recoil back on that lung? And if you have a, a diagram, you'll see your peak pressure will always be higher, and then the graph kind of flattens out, and you get your plateau pressure. Plateau pressure is really kind of a neat thing, because if you work in an intensive care unit, uh, and I've seen this on critical care board exams, is that you can basically predict different disease processes or problems like things like mucus pluggings and kinking of endotracheal tube by looking at the separation points between your peak pressure and your plateau pressure. So there, we do use plateau pressure. You, we should use plateau pressure. I would say that most providers in intensive care units probably don't, not as well as we should, the same way that we don't really adjust flow rates by looking at our flow time loops and our, our, our flow volume loops and so forth, uh, but it's probably something worthy of a podcast uh, by itself. Lastly, we're going to talk about some email I received about the topic of geometry, and I, I really got a good chuckle about this because I, I, I love to feel challenged and, and be learning. That's why I work at a university hospital. My residents are much, much smarter than I ever was or ever will be, and, and so they're always providing challenges. But I've always tried to teach critical care from the perspective that most of the biology, the chemistry, the calculus that we learn in high school is really what makes up 85 or 90% of that core knowledge that we use in the intensive care unit. And what I love about the intensive care unit is it's really applied physiology lab. Well, I got this... Uh, email and it was a very kind introduction that uh, I enjoy the podcast I, I learn a lot of them but then we get in um, to some feedback which which was good it says first I could believe your uh, assertion that a baby's geometry gives him or her a larger surface to volume ratio now we're talking this was a podcast we talked about in regards to I, I believe this is a burn resuscitation podcast and we talk about um, transference of heat from a child compared to adult and um, uh, the comment that I made was that children are much more spherical, and therefore they have a more matched volume to surface area ratio, which provides really them to take on and lose heat at a much easier or rapid rate than, say, an adult. So the email goes, I, I can believe your assertion that baby's geometry gives him or her a larger surface to volume ratio than an adult. However, it is not because they are closer to a sphere while adults are more cylindrical. If anything, that helps compensate. A sphere happens to be a shape which minimizes the surface to volume ratio for a given volume. That's exactly right. It's, it's fact that's exactly why bubbles are spheres and not, say, cylinders. Um, and this is also why when you look at some... Um, 
containers uh, that we man-made containers that we actually make out of spheres. And there's another good example is if you care, I explain how to prove this mathematically. No, you don't, because I actually I, I believe you and I agree. Babies do have something working against them. They are small. A small sphere has a larger surface-to-volume ratio than a large sphere. This isn't exactly why an ant can carry a droplet of water. Well, you have to carry a, a water bottle, but that is an example. Still illustrates the general idea. So I absolutely agree with that. Second, in a talk about mechanical ventilation, you use the example of a lever. Now, this this I absolutely love. Um, you use the example of a lever, making it easier to lift the weight. In this situation, we're talking about pressure support. In the example that we use on mechanical ventilation, I tried to make the... Um, metaphor or the example that in patients who are uh, that are compromised in order to do the same amount of work we can use pressure support to basically allow that patient to get the same amount of work with less amount of energy um because I define work as force times displacement. So um, our listener goes on, he says, in a talk about mechanical ventilation, you use the example of a lever making it easier to lift the weight, saying a lever decreases energy required to lift the weight. A lever decreases the force, but not the energy. I absolutely agree. Uh, required to lift the weight a given distance. Although the force you exert on the lever is smaller, you have to move the lever a farther distance for a given displacement of the weight. In fact, if the lever has the force required, then the distance you must move your side of the lever is exactly double the distance you move the weight. This is not a coincidence. This is required by the law of conservation of energy. In contrast, the mechanical ventilator actually does... This is where I, I love this... A mechanical ventilator actually does decrease the work, i.e. the energy that a patient must muster to breathe. Uh, it can do this because, unlike a lever, it consumes electrical energy, which in turn comes from the burning of coal. So you're uh, converting chemical energy into coal into mechanical energy, which assists you in breathing. A better analogy would be electric winch used to lift the weight. And... Um, to Ben, our listener, I appreciate the feedback, and you gave me a good laugh, and uh, I actually enjoy both of those examples. Uh, you've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Um, my website to give us feedback um, is www.burndoc.com. Also, you uh, could and we would appreciate if you have positive feedback. By all means, um, continue the podcast being free. Give us uh, uh, feedback on the Apple's uh, evaluation site. That does help me quite a bit. Also, you can follow me on Twitter uh, through the code name BurnDoc. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.